And now, an ad from Dad. <clears throat> All right. Save money on car insurance when you bundle home and auto with Progressive. Can I take these off? All right. What is this? This looks good. Wow. That's what, man. Where did you get this? I'm talking to you with the hair. Yeah, where did you get this? It's good stuff. That's solid. That's not veneer. That's solid stuff. Progressive can't save you from becoming your parents, but we can save you money when you bundle home and auto. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company affiliates and other insurers. Discounts not available in all states or situations. Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to Creating a Family. Talk about adoption and infertility. We're a weekly radio show podcast. And to make sure you automatically hear about each episode, subscribe to our show at either iTunes or on the radio page of our site, creatingafamily.org slash radio. Today's show will be about adopting and raising children with HIV. I'm Dawn Davenport, the director of Creating a Family. We're a nonprofit bringing education and support for both adoption and infertility. You can find us online at creatingafamily.org. The Creating a Family radio show is underwritten by our corporate sponsor, Faring Pharmaceutical. If you're struggling with infertility, it is easy to feel overwhelmed. So for comprehensive resources, including information about infertility, treatment options, and ways to save money, check out the Faring website at faringfertility.com. If you are a fan of the Creating a Family show and want to help us grow, please do us a favor and rate this podcast on iTunes. You can go to the creatingafamily.org slash radio show page, click on the iTunes button, and it will bring you to a page uh, that will allow you to click on the number of stars you want to give. And if you've got an extra minute, we would love for you to write a review. And and truly, we do appreciate this. Uh, as a nonprofit, we depend upon uh, word of mouth to spread the word about our resources, uh, and so it's a tremendous help. I blog on topics of interest to those involved with either adoption or infertility three times a week. And a recent blog you might enjoy was yesterday's blog on Can You Really Love an Adopted Child? Uh, The discussions uh, that we're having on that blog are absolutely great. uh, And uh, so I would love to have you uh, join and uh, give reassurance to those who are considering adopting but wondering if indeed they can love an adopted child. And and also we're talking about the myth or our society's infatuation with the myth of love at first sight. This show, as well as all the resources provided by Creating a Family, could not happen without the generous support of all of our sponsors, but especially our gold sponsors, including Children's Connection. They're an adoption agency with offices throughout Texas, providing domestic infant adoption, embryo donation adoption, home studies, and post-adoption support to families throughout the United States. We also have Nightlight Christian Adoptions. They have offices in California, Colorado, South Carolina, Kentucky. They also have adoption programs internationally throughout the world, as well as a domestic infant program and an embryo donation, embryo adoption program, known as the Snowflakes Adoption Program. The uh, uh, Snowflakes Adoption Program actually was one of the pioneers in in embryo, uh, embryo donation. As you just heard, we're a nonprofit, and one of the ways we pay our bills is through our sponsors who believe in our mission of bringing you unbiased, accurate information, and supporting you on whatever your path is to achieving parenthood. One way you can help us is by supporting those who support us. You've just heard about a few of our gold sponsors, but we also have other sponsors as well. So if you're looking for an adoption agency, an adoption attorney, or an adoption therapist, please make your first stop the Creating a Family Databases 
on the service provider page of our site. You can search by location, services provided, just a whole host of factors we think are important when choosing. And by using these databases, you support those who support us, and we thank you. On today's show, we are going to be talking about adopting and raising a child with HIV. Our guests are Dr. Jane Pyatt. She is medical director at the Bill Holt Pediatric HIV Clinic at Phoenix Children's Hospital. Kate Foley, who is a social worker and associate director of outreach at Spence Chapin Adoption Agency. And Tracy Heim. She is a director for Project Hopeful, which is a nonprofit bringing education and encouragement for those adopting children with HIV. She is also a mom to 10 children through adoption, including a child with HIV. Welcome, Jan, Kate, and Tracy to Creating a Family. Thank you Thank so you much for having us. Well, I think that the first question is such a basic one, but Dr. Pyatt, I do want to ask this because I still think there's there is a lot of misunderstandings out there. What is the difference between HIV and AIDS? So someone who has HIV has the virus, a human immunodeficiency virus, in their body they have that infection. Um, AIDS is a stage of the disease where the virus has destroyed the immune system to a point where it is very, very weak and unable to fight off even uh, very weak bacteria or any kind of uh, people are at risk for unusual infections and cancers because they just have no immune uh, Function, no immune protection. If you have, uh, if, if somebody has AIDS, but then um, starts taking the uh, the uh, medication that's available, the antiviral drugs, um, can they come back from AIDS um, and uh, have shown no impact, no uh, life-altering impact from having gone all the way through the spectrum to AIDS? So that can happen. Yes. Yeah. The the medications now are much more powerful than what we used to have, and so there are uh, individuals who can have AIDS and who can be treated with the medications and become healthy and and have uh, a long uh, time on the medications and do well. Uh, sometimes it's too late. Uh, sometimes there are already there is already damage to uh, the patient's body in different ways and. and Maybe all of that can't be corrected, but in many, many cases nowadays, uh, that can be uh, reversed. Okay. Dr. Pyatt, we often hear that HIV is a chronic rather than a terminal illness. That's something that we, that's, that's often stated now in the, in the press. But how can we really say that since we don't know what the really long-term, well, actually probably lifelong, effects and, and, uh, of the medication used to treat HIV, as well as the long-term efficacy, the, the, the ability of these drugs to continue to treat the disease without uh, uh, developing uh, resistant strains and stuff. How much do we know about all this? Because we haven't had the medications for all that long. So we know a lot, but there's a lot that we don't know. Uh, you know, the epidemic now is over 30 years old. And there's been a lot of work done, and there's been a lot of things that we have learned. And the treatment has gotten a lot better. And, you know, it used to be sort of looked at as a death sentence. It was considered a terminal illness for virtually almost everyone. Uh, and that's just not the case anymore. Um, the medications do work, and they work well. And so patients who can uh, take the medications and tolerate them can have long lives and healthy lives. And, 
you know, there's some recent data that suggests, for example, if you are a 20-year-old diagnosed today and you go on medication, you can live as long as 50 more years on average. And that's pretty good. Yeah. Uh, in terms yeah. of the yeah, in terms of the complications of the medications, we still have a lot to learn about that. But you know, for example, I have patients in my clinic that were born with the disease who are now in their twenties and are doing well and have been on these medications for a long time. And they do have side effects and they do have uh, complications. But one of the benefits is it does control the virus, and so they can be healthy. What are some of the side effects of the antiviral drugs that are used to treat HIV? And again, I'm going to direct this one to you, Dr. Pyatt, just because we're, it's, it's for the purely medical questions. I'm sending them your way. Go ahead. Yes, sure. So, I mean, that's a long list. Um, and there's there's early side effects and then there's long-term side effects. And so anytime uh, putting somebody on a medication, you look for immediate side effects such as a rash or nausea or headache or vomiting, uh, many, many different types of effects that we can see. Um, but if somebody is tolerating the medication and, and stays on it and does well, there are other effects that we do see uh, such as uh, effects on the cholesterol and the triglyceride levels that uh, many times those are a little higher because of the medications and so that's something that we have to carefully watch. Okay, yeah, for the when you're when you're talking about it for taking it for uh, for life because uh, right. we, I've heard about the one uh, uh baby I think that was uh, born that they believe now is actually being cured but uh it's uh is that the new frontier that we might be able to cure children um born with uh HIV So yeah that was an exciting presentation last March um and there's a lot of work going on in the field right now looking at cure not just for children but for adults as well and um the first case was of possible cure was actually in an adult man who got a bone marrow transplant. But um, this infant case is sort of brings up the whole topic of uh, preventing transmission from mom to baby. And we actually know how to do that very, very well. Um, so a mom who has HIV who is pregnant, we know how to prevent the virus getting to that baby almost all the time. So in fact, for infants who are exposed to the virus, uh, most of those uh, are are prevented from even getting infected in the first place. Um, mm -hmm. So this case that was reported in March was actually a baby who did get infected but got very strong treatment early on, and the virus appears to have cleared. And that's actually, uh, there's some data that suggests that that could possibly happen in adults as well who are treated very, very early in the infection. You know, that's a small subset of patients because we don't always know that the very minute that somebody's getting an infection, you know. But if sometimes, we do but, know about... Uh, yeah, there sometimes happens yeah, with needle pricks and things like that, that somebody, in accidental uh, things, that somebody would know that they might have been exposed, so really be looking for it. Exactly, and that that's also something that we uh, can prevent a lot of the time as well. Right, okay, cool. Um, Tracy, your daughter, uh, how old is your child with, uh, I think it's a daughter with uh, HIV? She will be six at the end of the month. Can you walk us through what your her medication routine would be? Just you know how how um, how overwhelming is or not overwhelming is the 
how many drugs does she have to take and and how uh, intrusive is it in in her life and your life? Okay, I would say it's not real intrusive at all. It's really specific. We think about her medic her HIV really two times a day because she needs her medication every 12 hours. So it's 7:30 in the morning and at 7.30 in the evening, we're all very hyper-aware of what time it is and that she needs to take her medication. She takes a combination of three drugs. She currently is on Epivir, Kaletra, and uh, Zidovidine, which is AZT. Gotcha. And, and what... Go ahead. Well, the, and that's uh, all. And uh, as far as how the medications affect her or affect her uh, everyday activities or side effects, does she uh, does she have significant ones or or does she one of the fortunate ones who tolerates it very well? She tolerates her medication very well. Uh, she did have a complication with a medication she was on, and we had to take her off of that one. She was um, developing lactic acidosis. So it was very disturbing to see a four-year-old, you know, walking around rubbing her legs and joints and complaining about how much they hurt. And that would be the symptom that there's something wrong, that she's having a bad side effect. And we removed her from that medication and put her on another one, and um, she's she's fine. Okay. And, and from a uh, how-to-pay-for-the-medication standpoint, um, do you need a really good insurance policy to cover these medications, or um, if you're if you have a policy where you have a huge deductible, is that something to think about? Um, are they very expensive? I would have guessed they would be, but um, anyway. So, so from a paying for the medication standpoint, uh, anything that you can add on that, Tracy? Sure, sure. This is. Um, I just had a conference this weekend, and we spoke a lot about it um, because medication would be a big cost. Um, I do happen to currently have an incredible um, health plan that is covering her medication. Um, so basically I'm paying $10 a month right now, which is really almost unheard of. I hate to even bring it up. Um, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I, but that's, that's actually in part because, so then I lead into how you can help pay for medication. You know, I, I know that certain insurance plans, um, really, if you have a higher formulary copay, or if they don't cover medication, that's when it would be expensive. If you had no um, medical uh, health care to supplement for medication, it can be upwards of $21,000 a year for medication. However, um, I'm actually paying so very little because um, a lot of the drug companies have copay um, Benefit plans. So mm-hmm. currently, Kalitra is paying my copay, and Epivir is paying my copay. And they change every year. But the first year, um, Kalitra was paying the copay for two of my drugs if I got it with a combination of other drugs, which obviously you are because you're taking three medications. So um, they have a lot of copay plans. I spoke with a man just over the weekend who has no um, healthcare coverage for the medication itself. And if he were not getting any assistance, because he does actually still get some, if he weren't getting any, it would cost him $500 a month for his child's uh, medication. But um, the the um, pharmacies have been really wonderful. At least Walgreens Pharmacy is wonderful 
at um, helping find copay assistance or coverage, and he says for the next two months, um, Apavir is paying his out-of-pocket expense, and he's not paying for his daughter's Apavir for the next two months. So um, in addition to that, every state has an ADAP program, which is AIDS Drug Assistance um, Program to help um, pay for those medications. And they vary by state if you qualify for them or not. Or how much you qualify for, but they're they're rather generous. Excellent. Um, And Dr. Pyatt is the, or Jan, is the... um, Mm-hmm. The twenty-one thousand a year, a fairly decent average uh, for uh, treatment, uh, without uh, having coverage. If you if you do not have coverage, yeah, I mean, like they were saying that you ha- they have to use three medications together, and each one of them is very expensive. But it is nice, uh, and they are always usually the high tier, as they mentioned, copay on on most of the plans. Um, all of the plans, really. Um, but the copay assistance programs are really, really helpful for that. And, you know, they they do change every year, and they could go away at any time. But fortunately, right now, they are very helpful. Okay. All right. Kate, when, I mean, this, uh, is, this show is primarily geared towards people who are thinking about or have or have adopted a child with HIV, not not necessarily uh, for giving birth to a child or with a mother who is uh, infected. So when you are thinking about, uh, well, let me back up and say, um, where in the world are children available uh, with uh, that have HIV in need of families? Um, and let's include uh, the U.S. Uh, when we're talking about that. Where, where are, where's the greatest prevalence of children with HIV who are uh, looking for homes? Well, like you acknowledge, there are, you know, including the United States, there are children all over the world in every single country that are living with HIV. And um, the prevalence numbers are going to shift but the largest number of people live in sub-Saharan Africa who are infected, and that is the most affected region in the world. There are an estimated, by the data that I've recently seen, just over 3 million children living with HIV, the majority of whom contracted through mother-to-child transmission, like was acknowledged earlier. Mm-hmm. And so um, adoption agencies like Spence Chapin work in a variety of countries, including the United States, to try to find families for the children who are both infected with the disease but also legally freed for adoption and, and ready for a permanent family. And in the United States, uh, is uh, because we get this question some forum, uh, I would assume that nowadays it would be fairly unusual uh, for an uh, expectant woman, if she knows she has HIV, uh, then there are going to be steps taken to prevent the transmission. So there, sh- there, in theory, should be relatively few, if if none, children being born currently with HIV. Is that what uh, you're seeing, uh, Kate at Spence Chapin, and also uh, Jan at uh, the uh, at your HIV clinic? Uh, is that what you're saying? Uh, I'll start with you, Kate. Great. 
So we, we do see that. And if, if a woman comes to us and she um, hasn't already started prenatal care, we connect her to a, a physician who's able to start prenatal care. And, and if she does um, have HIV, to start that treatment and get that plan in place, certainly. But we also think about the children who are in our foster care systems across the United States who um, are, you know, eight and over, 15 and over, who are looking for permanent families. And might be HIV positive. So I, I believe that there is a larger population of kids um, who need permanent adoptive families from the foster care system than necessarily infants who might be infected at birth. Although we might we might still see that we haven't we haven't seen that because like we acknowledge um, there is a lot of preventative work that can be done um, at birth. Yeah, and, and that is exactly where uh, I think we I think we do see that there are children. Um, particularly older kids and the uh, uh, foster care system uh, who uh, might have HIV and be looking for a family. Um, uh, Dr. Pyatt, anything that you could add to that as far as where children are in the U.S. that need uh, families with HIV? Right. Yeah, I mean, we we are preventing cases where we know uh, mom is infected and and she is accessing care and, and offered and and getting treatment, but you know there are, are areas where people are not necessarily they don't have good access to care, and so they may you know they may not be tested or they may not um, get treatment before the delivery. And I think in the U.S. right now, where we're seeing the epidemic is is most strong is in the South, and uh, you know we aren't seeing near as many kids that are born and that are positive in the U.S., that's a low number. I think the last one that I have here in Phoenix born here was two years ago, and that was a situation where mom wasn't accessing care. Um, but, you know, there still are kids around, and, and as you mentioned, in the foster system that uh, may not have been detected or who have been detected but are looking for a family. Yeah, Okay. You are listening to Creating a Family. Today we're talking about adopting and raising a child with HIV. Creating a Family has the largest adoption and infertility communities on the social networks, and we would love to have you join us. On Twitter, you can connect with us at Creating a Family. On Facebook, you can connect with us at our Facebook page, which is uh, Creating a Family, or our Facebook group, which is the Creating a Family support group, uh, or you can connect with me, individually, which is dawn.davenport1. You can find either the group or the page uh, by typing in the words creating a family in the Facebook search box, and uh, we both of those would pop right up. HIV is a communicable illness, uh, and, and, and so how careful must parents be when raising a child with HIV? Tracy? Um, well, we talk a lot about universal precautions. I think that is the biggest safeguard for everyone. Basically, we teach our kids don't play with blood. It's just a good policy in general. Um, I do know that HIV, while very strong inside your body, cannot exist outside of it. So um, while very strong and wily inside, it's very fragile outside of the body, and it, and it dies fairly rapidly in air. So um, if you do have an abrasion or, um, you know, a, your child is bleeding, you use a barrier, a paper towel, you can put on a glove if you want, but your skin is a very good barrier and you have a paper towel, you blot the area, clean it, 
and um, put a Band-Aid on it, just like you would with any other child. You throw your stuff away, and um, that's pretty much it, uh, um, just in a you know daily living with it situation. Um, any schools or public places or churches or buildings should all be exercising universal precautions, and that covers you. It's only transmitted in three very specific ways, which aren't happening in you know just normal life settings. You're not you're, it's birth and breastfeeding, um, you know, mother to child transmission, sharing of dirty needles, and sexual contact. So that's not happening you know, just in general. It's very specific when you could be exposed to mm-hmm. HIV. And it's not a typical uh, uh, contact that typically happens between a parent and a child. Exactly. Uh, you have bigger problems if that's happening. Yeah. yeah. Uh, Jan, <laughs> anything else that you tell families that uh, either are adopting or, ha- or have a child in any way that has HIV, any concern in the everyday life of a family, any particular things that parents should be careful of, any things that, that any different way of, of, of working with a child than you would typically do to make certain that you uh, are protected from the disease? Yeah, I mean, I think Tracy discussed that very well, but uh, we tell our families that normal things like hugging and kissing and, you know, eating dinner together and, you know, silverware and that kind of thing are not going to be a method of transmission so that sometimes people are worried uh, about those everyday types of things and you know kids need love and they need that kind of physical contact and that's just not a risk Um, so we do talk about that with our families and you know people worry about other body fluids like you know urine and stool and vomit I'm sorry to be using those words but um, they're they're not a risk Okay, thank you. Um, they're not really a a risk unless there's blood there, and then if there is blood there, you would treat that as though you would you you were taking care of blood itself. So, you know, as she said, it's it's something that's very specific and that's fairly easy to take care of. It's just something you need to be aware of uh, how to how to take care of blood and how to clean it up and make sure that other children in the home and other people in the home are aware of that as well. Let me make sure I repeat that. So basically, urine, stool, mucus, uh, vomit, uh, none of that is a way of transmitting or is not a, 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 the virus HIV is not going to be transmitted through any of those bodily fluids. Is that, did I understand you correctly? If, if, there, if there isn't blood in there, okay, so that's not going to be right. Okay, so it's um, just... It, go ahead, Tracy. I was... Well, if I could interject, we generally just kind of a good rule of thumb. If it's icky, sticky, or gooey, you know, treat it as such and clean <laughs> it, it up better. But, That's um, always a good rule. Yes. If it's icky, sticky, or gooey, take precautions is what you're saying. Exactly, exactly. In our house, basically, if it's icky, sticky, or gooey, you'd call mom. Mom, come deal with this. Yes, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Even when I don't want that to be, you know, I don't want to be the universal go-to. It's like, no, call your father. Like, deal with it yourself. <laughs> but no, I completely, yeah, yeah, no. No, no one never does, and, and mom is always called for. Um, let's see. Uh, Kate, how much information, if you're considering adopting a child uh, and you're open to a child with HIV, how much information on the health of the children is available 
uh, pre-adoption, um, especially uh, health of the child as is relation to their viral load, uh, whether they've been on medication when they got on medication, that type of information. And, and Kate, if you need to break it down by country, feel free, uh, because I think in the United States we probably have as much information as the, as the county or the foster care has, but in other countries maybe not. And that's exactly right. We do see that it does depend a lot on um, the system or the um, the caregivers and what they have about the particular child. In international adoption as well as in domestic adoption, families can expect to have the full file on the child, but how recent that file is is going to depend on the particular child welfare system. In the United States, we have the benefit of not needing any translations, all of the tests and um the, the structure of how we treat the disease is, is understood because our doctors are right here in our backyard. And so adoptive families have the benefit of knowing everything from day one to very, very current information without having to look at another system's medical, another country's medical system. When we look at other countries, there is some difference. And we at Spence Chapin think a lot about our South Africa program. And specifically in our South Africa program, because the prevalence of HIV is so high with the children in care, um, the child welfare organization that we partner with is connected to a clinic. And families are able to receive very detailed information about the child's medical status and how they've been treated and um, what's worked and what hasn't worked and um, be able to, to share that with their doctor here in the United States before the child even comes here. We also work in other countries where we have representatives or advocates on the ground who um, have the possibility of maybe following up. We get a medical report and a doctor here in the United States says, you know, we'd really like some follow-up information on particular tests or numbers and um, we can go out and try to gain that information. So families have a very full picture. And we understand that that's an important part for families to um, have the information they need to be able to make a decision and work with their doctor to really understand the full scope of the child's medical needs. Uh, Jan, Dr. Pyatt, does it matter, uh, is it important information for parents to have to know when the child, um, or if the child, I suppose, but let's say, assuming that there's been some medication uh, being given, uh, when the, how old the child was, and what the viral load was when the child started uh, receiving medication. Is that important information? You know, I think any information is helpful. The more information, the more helpful, because it, it helps you understand that child better and what they may or may not be resistant to and what may or may not work now. Um, but to be honest with you, um, many times they don't bring very much information um, right. from That's the, point. the different they countries. Would... Yeah. yeah. I and, would it, and it does that. depend, if I can interject, this is Katie very quickly, how, you know, in our, speaking directly to our South Africa adoption program, many of the children are treated from birth because they are in care from birth. And in other, um, some of the other countries we work in, if a child enters the child welfare system at 8, 9, 10 years old, um, the, the child welfare professionals and the medical teams that they work with are also trying to really understand what that child's history was before um, they came to the child care institution and what they were being treated with or what they weren't um, being treated. So it, it can be sometimes a little bit of a puzzle to put together. Uh, Tracy, um, if I, if, yeah, yeah, go ahead, because I was going to say you have some, uh, some experience in this with your Project Hopeful as well. Go ahead. 
Yeah, well, and just personally, I, I have brought home 10 children from three different countries at various ages and stages of health and other things. And um, practically, as an adoptive parent, we all want as much information as possible. But I have children with zero information, and I have children, well, you know, my daughter Dasha, we knew she had HIV. Um, and we knew she, we knew what she was being treated with, but she had you know other issues. She was malnourished. She was tiny from you know from institutional life. Um, I, I, it's really wonderful to have as much information as possible, but living practically in it, not having that information, isn't so detrimental to your child. Um, as opposed to getting them home and seeing them and doing their labs and being able to treat them in person. Sometimes the medical records don't translate well or they're just not available. But I I guess I would encourage you not to let that stop you from saying there's just not enough information because there's never going to be enough information. Um, Yeah, to answer all your questions, that's for sure. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's my experience in general is that there's very little information, and particularly not labs. I'm, you know, most of the time, the kids that I've seen who've come from other countries either have no labs, or I maybe have one lab. Um, I just have a child who came from Ethiopia last week, and all I know about him is that he's been on treatment for a year, and it turns out that he's completely resistant to the treatment that he's on. So you kind of have to take the child that comes and, and and get started and find out as much as you can and go from there. Uh, Katie, from your experience with um, how, how available is medication, the HIV uh, antiviral medications in other countries? How many of the children are you seeing um, are currently, have, had, have not been treated prior to coming into the orphanage? Mm-hmm. And again, that does depend very much on the country um, itself. And, you know, speaking to our South Africa program, we are, you know, one of the reasons we wanted to partner with our with our partners there in Johannesburg is that they are attached to a clinic and they are able to treat kids um, very proactively and they have a fantastic medical resources right there for all the kids in their care. In other countries, like in Bulgaria or in Colombia, um, it really does change depending on the region that the child is living in and how rural or how urban, how close um, medical assistance is. And it is not, it's not universal, even within a certain country. And so there is, um, you know, the, there is the understanding that a test would be taken to understand a child's status and what that exact treatment would be. Um, can certainly vary. Can, it, it absolutely does. Tracy, uh, I think you have some familiarity with uh, Eastern Europe and Russia. How available is the medication there uh, for children, or for adults too, uh, but in this okay. particular case, um, children who are for, up for adoption? Okay. I know that in Ukraine, that's where my daughter is from, the medication is provided by the government. She did receive her treatment. She was getting it from the start. It's it's there and available. They don't have access to as many drugs as we have here in America. It might not be the best drug for them to be on. They may be on an older protocol, um, but they are receiving treatment. 
Okay, so throughout the um, Jan, throughout the world now is uh, you know we we certainly heard in the in the past because of the cost of medication there were large segments in in particular we think of uh, sub-Saharan Africa that even after the antiviral drugs were around they were not available. Um, so people were dying in other countries that were not dying here simply because they couldn't afford the medication. Is that not happening so much now? You know, it's still happening. I think that it's definitely improved. And I think two years ago we saw for the very, very first time the death rate stabilize and actually start to go down just a little bit because more treatment became available around the world for people. Um, But... Uh, and and I can tell you that the kids that are coming from other countries now tend to be on medication when they get here, which was not something that we used to see at all. And then now it seems like most of them are getting on treatment. But you know, it's still there's still lots of people that aren't getting treatment, and lots of kids that need treatment that aren't getting it. And and uh, you know, you worry with uh, the situation in the world today how how those resources are going to continue to get there. Um, but it's definitely better, and that's that's a good thing. If I could add, I would say that it, that it's stigma within their countries that it's um, potentially keeping them from care, um, uh, that it may be available to them, but their family um, won't take won't go to get the medication because they couldn't live with um, in their society with people knowing they had HIV. So they're not going to get the treatment so that nobody knows they're sick until they get so sick that that it's too late. So stigma, I'd say, is probably a bigger um, bigger hampering of treat of treatment than than the drug access itself. Interesting, and that, and that makes very good sense. We are so happy to have you today with us on this Creating a Family show when we're talking about uh, adopting and raising a child with HIV. We primarily keep in touch with our audience through our twice-weekly e-newsletter, and we would love to have you on our list. We let you know about the latest developments in adoption and infertility as well as the upcoming week's blog and show topic so that you could submit questions uh, or uh, suggest topics to be covered. Sign up for our weekly newsletter on any page of creatingafamily.org and uh, it's up in the upper left-hand corner until we redo our site. That's where it is. Um, Kate, it used to be that it was harder, uh, or at least there were more hoops to jump through to adopt a child from another country that had HIV uh, due to immigration concerns uh, about bringing children into the country or people into the country with the disease. Is that true now? Fortunately, due to a lot of advocacy work, that is no longer true. So you're right that in the past there was a visa waiver that was required that could take um, a long time to be issued. And luckily, as of a few years ago, that is no longer in existence. And so families adopting a child who's HIV positive can expect the same um, immigration hoops that any adoptive family would jump through. Well, um, actually, there is a new wrinkle again. That has to do with HIV, yes, and it's um, it's really not good. It's got to do with TB and oh. um, and HIV because what's happening, you know, they do TB tests, but if you're somebody, if you're a child with HIV, then they won't. They are requiring um, sputum testing, and in, in, in Ukraine, that's taking eight weeks. 
Mm. And that usually doesn't happen until after you've gone to court and the child's placed with you. And so right. if you're already if it's already five to seven weeks um to complete that adoption in country and then you're adding another eight weeks mm-hmm. to have um the T B clearance because they're requiring different sputum testing, um even with a negative chest X-ray and a negative um, skin test, but if they have HIV, they're requiring the more advanced TB testing. Um, it's causing quite a bit of problems. We're having problems out of Ethiopia, our trouble with that in Ethiopia and um, Ukraine specifically. Let me make sure I understand what you're saying. That this is not a, this is not applicable to all children in Ukraine or Ethiopia. The more extensive TB testing, but it's only required if a child uh, is HIV positive, then those children are required to have the more extensive TB test, even if the uh, the, the X-ray, the chest X-ray and the or lung X-ray and the um, uh, skin test are negative. So am I understanding you correctly? You are understanding me correctly. And that's because th- th- there is concern that somehow TB, that, that AIDS will cover up the the effectiveness of a chest x-ray or a skin test? I mean, how how are the two connected? I don't know. We can't actually figure that out. I don't know how it's connected. Um, It just, as a parent of a child with HIV, it just seems like a different way to be discriminatory. I'm not saying that that's true, but I'm saying that's how it's making us, that's how we're perceiving it, Mm -hmm. because, you know, so I, I don't know why. I don't know the science behind that. Huh. Well, so, look, we've got a doctor here, Dr. Pyatt. Tell us, yeah. is there a connection? <laughs> well, the only comment I can make about that is, is certainly if you have HIV and you have TB, the chest X-ray is going to show something usually. Um, the skin test, however, there's some probably some rationale behind that. If if you have AIDS, for example, your immune system is not working. The skin test requires that you have enough immune system to mount an antibody response and get a reaction from the skin test. Um, and so if you have AIDS, you may have TB and not react to that skin test. So they you know, they may be feeling like we don't want to miss those kids that are really sick and aren't reacting to the skin test, and so we need to do further testing on that. But I'm not sure why that has to be done there after you've already gone to court where it could be done here, you know. Yeah, that's exactly. and, and, and and why not do a, a chest X-ray? Um, it, yeah, the chest X-ray usually is going to be pretty abnormal in a kid with TB and AIDS. Well, would it be, though, would it be abnormal? Maybe that's it. Would it be abnormal in a child with AIDS, uh, irrespective of the TB? Yeah, I mean, it, it, yeah. Maybe that's it, then they feel like, the the fact that there is AIDS uh, and that you're gonna you might notice something on the chest X-ray because of that, it would either mask or it would certainly confuse whether or not the child had TB. Maybe, I'm just I'm just guessing at this point. Okay, but anyway, so yes, so, there so, is. Well, and this is no, this is Katie again. I just want to add in that this is an important point to really for prospective adoptive parents to look at the particular country that they're interested in adopting from to make sure that they fully understand what the what that process is like after you finalize the adoption or after you're in the process of finalizing and, and what the steps are in country um, to, to get your child home. Well, and, and it sounds like this is a relatively new something that is required, and it may go away just as soon as it came up. So 
um, you know, those unfortunately rules like this, that tends to be how. So for people who are listening to the show outside of 2013, in the future, uh, note that, that this is a good question to ask your adoption agency because it may not be required uh, at that point in time. We have an interesting question from Leah that is a great segue into the, the what I want to talk about next. And I promise I didn't uh, lead her into sending a question. That was such a great uh, a segue. Uh, she says, my daughter is now six and was adopted from Vietnam at 14 months of age. She is HIV positive and doing very well. Taking medications twice daily and having blood drawn every three months has become just a part of the routine. And we offer special treats after blood work to give her something positive to associate the experience. When you have a child who doesn't drink juice often, something as simple as a small cup of juice after meds or a piece of hard candy can work wonders. My biggest concern moving forward for my daughter is how we communicate about her status. At six, she occasionally asks why she has to take medication all the time. I've given her some very simple language about this. Some people's bodies need extra help to stay healthy. I would like some insight about how to support her understanding of her status as she grows. I am also taking into account that she needs to be able to use good judgment about who is safe to tell before she is given the HIV label. Thank you for doing this show and for all your hard work on behalf of children and families. Well, you're more than welcome, Leah. Thank you. Um, Tracy, I'd like to start with you because that's a lot of what Project Hopeful does is is talk about some of these issues. Uh, And so what I'd like to kind of move us into now is, is the discussion of who to tell and, and how to tell, and then if we could start with that, and then we'll, we'll branch out into how, how to help children when they're making the decision. But let's start just you are adopting, and uh, how important is it that you tell your child's HIV status, and if so, to whom? Okay, that That is probably what we talk the most to people about because it is, so very specific, and there are there's lots of stigma that's attached to it, and there's lots of strong opinions about disclosure. Um, what I've kind of uh, counseled people, and what we're starting to talk about, is that it's a private matter, not a secret matter. That it's important to remember it's private, not secret. Privacy breeds respect. Secrecy breeds shame. So. Um, just as our children have adoption stories that we also don't tell everything about, that would be our child's medical diagnosis as well um, because there's a lot more baggage that comes with HIV. So, But we have children who are neither private nor secret. They say too much. They talk too much. They, you know, it doesn't mean it so much to them. So when we talk about, you know, once it's spoken, it can't be retrieved, um, we we talk about foundation of privacy and, and circles of disclosure. Not everyone is party to everything about us. There are things that we keep personal and there are things that we share. Now, some people um, choose not to ever say anything about it to anyone and go as far as soaking the medication labels off of the bottles before they throw them away. I personally think that would be too restrictive of a way for us to live. So when Dasha and I talk about it, she she knows she's taking medicine. All children understand taking medicine to get better if you're sick. But we've we explain, you know, your blood has an illness and this medication keeps you healthy. 
so while we have actually used the terms HIV with her, it doesn't doesn't really come up much at all, and we talk about a lot about HIV because of our involvement with Project Hopeful. But um, just on a practically practical living, we you know this medication is to keep you healthy. Now, how does that translate into? Um, it, we're at an evening birthday party at Chuck E. Cheese, so it's 7.30 and it's time for her medication. I ha- hers is liquid. It needs to be cool. We have a little cute little cooler with her name on it. And now it's 7.30. Hey, Dasha, come over here. Let's take your medication. Well, people are acutely aware of you giving your child medicine because, you know, does your kid have something and is my kid going to get sick? Because none of us want a cold, none of us want strep. And so they may say to you, uh, why is your kid sick? And I say, no, she's got a chronic condition and it's managed with this medication. Well, what is it? Well, that's something that's not your business. We don't care to talk about it. It's chronic and managed by this and you, it's no risk to you. And and you need to, you know, you personally as a parent need to have um, that language and, and that confidence and understanding of, I don't have to tell you, you know, that people will keep asking, well, what is it? Well, why? Well, what? Just like, well, why do their parents die? Was it natural causes? You know, they'll keep being invasive, and you have to be comfortable resisting the invasiveness. Or you can choose to go to the car and give your child medication or go into the bathroom. But your child is aware of how you are reacting to the questioning and how you answer it. So I I encourage people, how comfortable are you? You need to grow into how you feel about it. You need to live with it. I would say don't make any decisions about what you are or aren't going to say until you know how comfortable you are. Well, let me ask um, We've had a question, an email question from John that that I think um, raises an interesting point. It's rather long, so I'm going to shorten it, uh, paraphrase. He says, my wife and I are considering and praying about adopting a child with HIV. One of our concerns is that we have three children already in our home. Our main concern is with, I think it's his mother-in-law, I guess is his wife's mother, who keeps the kids regularly, but she is terrified of this illness. Um, And basically they're trying to decide whether they would need to tell her um, about the illness, and they're afraid that it will affect her relationship with the child and her willingness to keep uh, the children. So, I mean, that's a, that's an interesting. Uh, so, let's. Uh, I hear what you're saying, Tracy. But yeah, now, yeah, what I, like I, to I speak to this too. Yeah. Kind of march outward from uh, basically strangers who have, you know, who are just see you giving your you know, your kid medication at Chuck E. Cheese. That's one thing. But what are what about people who would be caring for your children? Uh, and then what about teachers who are in in the child that you're in your child's school? How do you handle those issues? Um, Not you personally, but how do you have other people yeah, handle no, them? Well, that's where it gets a lot stickier. Um, different state well, school very quickly. Um, each state is kind of individual, but I believe now mostly you don't have to disclose the school's not caring for your child's HIV. So you, you would need to check with your state, but it's not something that in general needs to be told to them. They're not giving her, they're, they're not giving your child their medicine. They're using universal precautions. It's not anything that they need to know. It's not vital for them to know it. Um, it's not even vital for caregivers to know it, although they would want to. It hurts more when it's your family because I know a number of people whose family has disowned 
them, I'm we're not going to come see you. We're not coming to your house. And if Grandpa goes to your house, then he's not welcome at our house. And I know of um, grandparents who've walked away from their daughter and their new child and kept the relationship with the grandkids they've had a 10-year relationship with. I I can never assure anybody that they're not going to lose friends and family over a choice that they make um, because it is happening. It hasn't happened to me, thankfully. But I... um, you would have to be prepared for that. Your family, um, even in spite of um, education about it, here's the facts about it. It's really straightforward, but they don't want to accept it, and they have decided, I'm not going to believe it, and I don't want to have anything to do with you. But they have those same feelings, even if you adopt a child. They have those strong opinions about adoption, too. Um, I adopted a 13-year-old boy from Africa, I probably got many more comments, um, discriminatory, discriminatory comments about that than I have about the HIV. But it's all kind of part and parcel with adoption, and people do have strong opinions, and you might lose family, and you'll probably lose some friends. You know, Dr. Pyatt, I want to uh, uh, talk a little more about, about that. It seems to me that the distinction, it worries me some. I'm, I'm thinking about it. Um, it seems like caregivers and teachers, uh, even though we are all supposed to be using universal precautions, um, a lot of times if a kid's got a bloody nose, you might be exposed, That use that as an example, um, to blood before you're able to stop yourself. Is, is there any significant reason that, uh, that you should, uh, that, or what should you think about when trying to decide whether to tell caregivers and, and teachers? And I think that is a a, a personal decision, and, and families are comfortable with different decisions with that. And I think, you know, in terms of a school, it, that's a professional occupation, and they should be using universal precautions. HIV is not the only uh, blood-borne disease, and they, there could be kids with hepatitis B or C or other things that, you know, they have to be using universal precautions. That's just the way that they need to be acting in a professional setting like that. And there may be lots of things that they don't know about uh, that have nothing to do with HIV that they need to be doing the same thing for that. So they should be using that. And, um, you know, there is a stigma and it is a problem. Um, So that just having people willy-nilly in schools, they don't necessarily understand, you know, sometimes we've had families who've told a school, they've wanted the school to know, and they've told the school nurse or they've told the teacher, and that person goes on to tell many, many other people, which is actually not legal. (laughs) Um, But once it's in the school record, you're right, it's going to be, yeah. Uh, right, and, and then, you know, it's, it becomes a huge problem because people aren't as educated about this illness, unfortunately, as they should be or if, that it would be nice for them to be, and so they don't react. They react with their gut, and they don't really always know the facts. So um, the caregivers is is another issue in terms of your family, and, again, I think that's an individual situation, mm-hmm. but I think, you know, if your mother-in-law is going to be the primary babysitter for the child it's it's useful to have that discussion and you know if that if if that is 
something that they cannot deal with, then maybe that's not the right caregiver. Um, family member giving, you know, that's the primary caregiver. I think each situation is individual, and you have to decide what's best for your child and for your family. Um, and we try to help with that a lot. I mean, we, we will bring in grandparents. We will bring in anybody and, and help educate them. And sometimes that's just all it takes is some education. Um, sometimes that isn't that enough, well. unfortunately. Yeah. I was thinking the and very that same helps thing. even with schools. Yeah. Yeah. Um I don't suppose it would work to just say to to a family member who is or a care a caretaker to say, you know, our child has a blood-borne disease, which just means simply it's controlled well by medication, but you know, you just need to avoid uh handling the blood, although, you know, nothing to freak out about, just you know, something like that and maybe not mention it, but Tracy, I think from what you're saying, people will push and ask continue, so that that probably wouldn't work. To try to be no, vague. and and if they're you know if they're drawing the medication out of the bottle, they're going to go and Google what that medication is. It's going to come out if it's a mm-hmm. caregiver, you know, if it's somebody caring for your child. Just as a parent, I would think this would be something that would be important for a long-term babysitter, my child, to know. Um, right. It's only although because they maybe it, it doesn't affect all, but it is. I mean, it, it is. I, I I have a friend who had a babysitter recently declined to watch their children because of it. Mm-hmm. So, um, and there, other than it just made her uncomfortable, she has other children in the home who are other people's children, and those parents may have a problem with it. And I could see it was just a problem that would get bigger, and she just said, you know what, I'm, you know, no, I, you'll have to consider. It's just not worth it, yeah, that you're something along those lines. Yeah. Right. And, and yeah, it's hurtful, but I understand that too, because she's yeah, I, I do as well. Um, you are listening to Creating a Family. Our mission at Creating a Family is to provide unbiased and medically accurate education and, and support for those involved with adoption or infertility. We have extensive resources on all types of special needs adoptions, and we recommend that you uh, check out these resources if you're considering adopting. Any type of a child with any type of special need, you can find them by going to our site, creatingafamily.org, hovering over the word adoption in the blue horizontal menu. A drop down menu appears, click on resources, and uh, click on special needs adoption. Um, and, and then the, the last thing I, uh, that we'll have time to talk about, and we won't have time to do much. Uh, but is talking as our children approach their uh, becoming older, having to help them handle relationships and safety. Uh, Tracy, I know your daughter's young, but you work with families who do have older children. Um, what type of education um, specific, uh, as opposed to the education we all give our children, which is, you know, uh, wait, don't have sex, uh, be careful, right. uh, if you are going to have sex, use protection, that type of stuff. But in addition to that, um, what do parents uh, need to think about when raising a child who has a disease which is communicable through sexual activity. Well, we've talked a, a lot about this too. It 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 adds a layer of responsibility to our children. That is when they are legally required to disclose. You must disclose to a sexual partner before you engage um, in a, in any sex act that you have HIV. That is definitely when you are legally required to disclose. So then it becomes more of a moral issue. What are the morals of your family? What, you know, what, what if, you know, if you're, 
more open to, you know, sex as your choice, then you talk to them clearly about um, safe sex measures, explaining that it's not necessarily, um, you know, 100% safe. It's certainly very good. Um, Or if you choose to wait and only have, you know, only engage with the person that you've married, then you only have to disclose that one time. But but it is a, a further burden for our children. It's another thing that's already in their very packed adoption bag of issues. I mm-hmm. also have this big, you know, moral obligation. It is part of of who I am and my responsibility. It's pretty heavy. Yeah, well, it's it's, it's something, I think, as you point out, it's something that, that as a parent we have to start educating them on as they and, and and this is not a one time discussion it's not something you wait until they're 16 to start talking about and it's also not something a you know come into the living room and talk with your father and I about this big big heavy <laughs> issue it's it's part of the education that goes on um yeah. that and it's just an extra burden i suppose it's not like the rest uh, of all parents have an obligation to be talking to our children about sexual safety and 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 responsible uh, intimacy and things like that. This is just something that they just said an added responsibility to that. Well, we have reached the end of our time, and as always, <laughs> we reach the end before we finish everything we'd like to talk about. I'd like to take a quick moment to thank another, or actually a few more of our gold sponsors. It is through their generous support that we can bring you this show, and uh, I and 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 uh, all the resources provided by creating a family. We have independent adoption centers whose mission is to provide open adoption placement and counseling to birth and adoptive families. They work with families in all 50 states and are fully licensed in California, New York, Florida, Texas, and more. You can visit them online at adoptionhelp.org. We also have All Blessings International. They're an adoption agency with offices in Missouri and Kentucky, working with families throughout the U.S., placing children from Congo, Haiti, Hong Kong, Latvia, Taiwan, and El Salvador. They also have a domestic infant adoption program. Thank you so much, Dr. Jan Pyatt. She is medical director at the Bill Holt Pediatric HIV Clinic at Phoenix Children's Hospital. Kate Foley, she is the associate director of outreach at Spence Chapin Adoption Agency. And Tracy Heim, she is with Project Hopeful. I thank you all for being our guest today on Creating a Family. If you want to participate in a discussion on the topics of this show, check out my blog tomorrow at creatingafamily.org slash blog to get more information on Project Hopeful. You can go to their website, which is projecthopeful.org, to get more information about uh, Dr. Pyatt's uh, uh, Bill Holt Pediatric HIV Clinic. You would go to the Phoenix Children's Hospital website first, which is phoenixchildrens, with an S, dot com, slash medical, dash specialties, slash bill, Dash Holt, or quite frankly, you know, as I'm even saying this, the very easiest thing to do would just be to Google <laughs> our friend Mr. Google here, Google uh, a Pediatric HIV Clinic Phoenix, and that one's going to pop right up. To get more information on uh, uh, Katie or on the Spence Chapin HIV programs, you can go to their website, which is Spence S P E N C E hyphen Chapin C H A P I N dot org. The UN estimates there there are millions of orphans in the world, including 104,000 currently available for adoption in the U.S. foster care system. 
These kids, as well as the millions of older kids throughout the world, deserve a home. To get more information about U.S. children waiting for a family, you can go to the adoption resource page at creatingafamily.org, under waiting children, I should say, um, where we can include photo listings of many of these children. Thanks for joining me today, and I will see you next week. Hi, it's Jamie, Progressive number one, number two employee. Leave a message at the... Hey, Jamie, it's me, Jamie. This is your daily pep talk. I know it's been rough going ever since people found out about your acapella group, Mad Harmony, but you will bounce back. I mean, you're the guy always helping people find coverage options with the Name Your Price tool. It should be you giving me the pep talk. Now get out there, hit that high note, and take Mad Harmony all the way to nationals this year! Sorry, it's pitchy. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Hi, it's Jamie, Progressive's Employee of the Month, two months in a row. Leave a message at the... Hi, Jamie. It's me, Jamie. I just had a new idea for our song about the Name Your Price tool. So when it's like, tell us what you want to pay, hey, 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 and the trombone goes, wah, 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 and you say, we'll help you find coverage options to fit your budget. Then we just all do finger snaps while a choir goes, savings coming at ya, savings coming at ya. Yes? No? Maybe? Anyway, see your practice tonight. I got new lyrics for the rap break. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law.